Good morning to all, and I greet you in the precious name of Jesus. It's a privilege to be together and a privilege to greet you in that name. Thinking of what to bring this morning, I've been immersed in the book of Hebrews for the last couple of months and tried to redirect my thinking for the message this morning and was unsuccessful in doing that. So for the next 30, 40 minutes or so, I will attempt to preach through the book of Hebrews or at least uh, look into the book of Hebrews. If you would have been a Jew or I was thinking of a Jew during the first century, but not a lot different today. What would have been the things that would have been extremely important to you? Think of the things that to the Jewish people would have been very important to them. The law, the word of God, that would come to mind immediately. The prophetic message in the Old Testament that would have been important. Uh, figures like Abraham, it was pretty important that they knew who he was and that they knew that their lineage went back to Abraham, the father of them all. Moses, synonymous with the law and a very revered figure. Angels were very important in the Old Testament and bringing the word of God and, and um, bringing God's message a lot of interaction with angels. Beginning in the Garden of Eden, the angel guarded the way to prevent them after the fall from coming back into the garden. Jacob wrestled with an angel. Balaam's donkey was blocked in the way by an angel. So angels played very prominently. The covenant was important. The promise of the land of Canaan. It was tied to that little piece of ground known as Canaan, Jerusalem, Israel today, very much still a part of who you are as a Jew, the land over there in the Middle East, in the Middle East. The eternal kingdom of David, the promise that this would be an ongoing kingdom and there would be a king continuously in the throne of David. High priest the highest religious authority was very critical. And at the time of, of Christ, probably the highest authority. The king was no longer there under Roman rule. They wanted that restored, but the high priest was very much in place. And then the entire system of worship, temple, sacrifices, that was a very important part of the Jewish system. The book of Hebrews was written during a time of transition when Christianity was still very much a sect in, of Judaism. And all of these things were still important to the Jewish people. Yes, they accepted Jesus as their Messiah, but they couldn't just instantly leave all of these things that they were born with and were a, a part of their lives and a part of who, the, who they were. And so it was just a, a fact that many of the, most of the Christians early on in that first century were practicing Jews who happened to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Yes, the Gentiles were coming in. Cornelius, Paul was the, the apostle to the Gentiles and very much accepted but still, Judaism played a, a large part in, in the Christian church. If you turn to Acts 21, you get a little bit of an insight. To the situation, Paul was returning to Jerusalem, Acts 21, verse 17. 
When we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, and the day following Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them, them take, purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from strangled, and from fornication. Just a review of what happened at the Jerusalem Council. Yes, the Gentiles were accepted, but it was important to the believing Jews in Jerusalem that Paul still supported their customs and their way of life. Ephesians 2.14, the other advantage they didn't have was the New Testament scriptures, the book of Ephesians that we read this morning. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We accept and it's not an issue for us to, to know that Christianity is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him, him alone. But this was very much in transition at the time that the book of Hebrews was written. What if all of those things that were important to the Jewish people, the law, the prophets, Moses, Abraham, the covenant, the temple, if you could present a better way to express your faith and at the same time confirm what you have lived and known and been a part of all of your life, if you could show that Jesus is better than all of that and still confirm it in your minds, that was the, the um, problem or the, the goal that the author set out in the book of Hebrews to at the same time, show the superiority and supremacy of the work of the Lord Jesus and yet confirm in their minds that they were right all along in, in keeping the law, in honoring Moses and Abraham and keeping the covenant and the worship that um, they were doing. So that, in a brief summary, is the, the book of Hebrews in uh, making that transition from Judaism to Christ and Christ alone. I would suggest that this transition was sped up and probably concluded at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. At that point, the laws or the, the temple, temple worship, the high priesthood was done away, the Jews were scattered, and from going forward from there, Christianity was a Christian sect distinct from Judaism. Not so at the time of the early church in that first 30-year uh, period after the time of Christ. It was written to a Jewish audience at risk of reverting to Judaism And like I mentioned, he very skillfully both reinforces what they believed and, and yet 
pointed them to the superior and the better way. I'd like to begin with looking at Matthew chapter 17 and verse 1 and understanding this transition. Matthew 17 verse 1 known as the Mount of Transfiguration. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. So they see this, this scene on the mountain, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, and then Peter, James, and John. Moses representing the Old Testament, the law. Elijah representing the prophets, the institutions that were very important to all the Jews. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, the incarnation, the um, word made flesh. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and very much his glory, the glory that had with the Father was, was shown here on the mountain. And then Peter, James, and John, given the responsibility of carrying the message forward. And while the scene is taking place, these people are assembled, a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And going forward, the word of truth, the message, will be through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, told not to speak those things until after his decease, we go to Second Peter. We find Peter faithfully telling about this. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we have not followed cunning dev cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your heart. We're not talking about cunningly devised fables put by men, but a message that we receive from the Lord Jesus confirmed on the mountain by God, this is my beloved son, hear him. And then we go to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory, express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. A summary and a concluding verse of all that he will, will uh, discuss and develop in the book of Hebrews God who at sundry times and in many ways spoke by the fa unto the fathers by the prophets. Moses, Elijah, has in these last days consolidated the message in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ.
who was the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, the express image as a stamp that you put on the paper and you see exactly what is on the stamp. His incarnation, the glory while he was in the world, and then we see his exalted glory. Upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the majesty on high. The message received while he was in the world, confirmed and fulfilled his death at Calvary, and now currently sitting at the right hand of the Father. And that message is repeated over and over again in the book of Hebrews, at the right hand of God, sitting at the right hand of, of the Father. And there are times when his sitting changes to standing. If you recall in the book of Acts, when Stephen was being stoned, that he looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. We have hope and we have confidence because of the work of Calvary, the finished work of the cross, and because today Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us. Wherefore, he's able to save them to the uttermost, those that come to him, seeing he ever liveth and maketh intercession for them. That is Hebrews 7, 20-something, I believe. Able to save them to the uttermost, because he ever liveth and maketh intercession for them. The supremacy of Jesus and of his work is emphasized in chapters 1 through 10, and I will just very quickly um, page through the, the book here and, and point out some of the, the high points, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse 4 says, made so much better than the angels. And we remember that angels were very important to them. There was a, a tradition that developed that said the Ten Commandments were actually delivered to Moses by the hand of an angel. And that has some New Testament validity. In Galatians, it says that through the hands of a mediator, and angels are mentioned that, that the law was given. So angels were very important in their tradition, and here he makes the case, chapters 1 and 2, Jesus better than angels. And at the same time, in the end of the chapter, he comes back and talks about, or even in chapter 1, the work of angels. Are they not ministering spirits for those, for the people of God? And in chapter 12, he talks about we are come to Mount Zion, to an innumerable company of angels, confirming that the work of angels is ongoing. And in chapter 13, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for by in that way many have entertained angels unawares. Chapter 2, a warning. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels is steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompensable reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect the final and the revealed word of the Lord Jesus himself? Chapter 3 actually pointing out at the end of chapter in chapter 2 many different ways that Jesus is better than angels in chapter 2 he is better than angels by being made lower than the angels taking on the form of human flesh the incarnation verse 7 thou hast made him a little lower than the angels thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the work of thy hands Verse 10, it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect 
through sufferings. And verse 17, and, and all things it became him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of people. And that is the first reference to Jesus being the high priest, the highest authority among the Jewish people at the time. And he develops that thought and continues it on throughout the book. Verse three, wherefore holy, or chapter three, verse one, wherefore holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly call, of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. And then in chapter three, proceeds to make the case that Jesus is superior to Moses, in that he that builds the house is has more honor than the house itself. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus was the builder of the house. Verse 5, Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Establishing the, the doctrine of the church for them. Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? The body of Christ in the world. Not anymore through Moses, but through the Lord Jesus himself. End of chapter 3, a second warning, and this is the pattern throughout the book. Exhortation and encouragement, followed by a warning. Verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Moses was faithful in his house and leading the children of Israel. When you think about the end of his work, beginning with two million people, they had the promise of Canaan. And what was it? Two out of those however many million that made it into the land of Canaan. Moses himself denied because of, of his taking things into his own hand and striking the rock which the rock was Christ instead of speaking to it and therefore he himself was not, not granted entrance into the land of Canaan. How much better the priesthood of Christ and his work and ministry, not only himself entering into the holy place but making it possible that we can follow after. So take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Chapter 4, the promise of a better rest. The children of Israel were promised the land of Canaan. That was part of the covenant, the land of Israel. We have a better hope and a better promise of heaven, of eternity with God. It's not dependent on the real estate in the Middle East. End of chapter 4, he gives us some very clear um, advantages in reaching our goal. The word of God, quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we have the word of God that is able to penetrate our being, our thoughts, our motivations, our intents. And verse 14, seeing we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Jesus walked the way before us and now passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Chapter 5, further thoughts on the high priesthood and the supremacy of Christ and his priesthood to those of the Old Testament. They were taken from among themselves. Verse 5-2, compassion on the ignorant, on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And because of that, by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Necessary that not only did they cover for their own sins, but 
for the sins of the people. Verse 8, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Verse 10, called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a central figure in the book and introduced here. And then he digresses a bit, wants to go on, but he says that he's not able to because they were not ready to accept it. Chapter 6. Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgments. And this will we do if God permit. And so he's saying that it is essential, yes, you've had your salvation experience, that principles of the doctrine of Christ, repentance, faith toward God, baptism. But you can't sit on those principles. It is essential that we continue on in the faith. Let us go on to perfection, leaving the principles, not forgetting that we were saved by the blood of Jesus, but going on and practicing and exercising our faith. 6 and verse 9, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And that after a very severe warning in the first part of 6, Verse 4, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift and were partakers of the Holy Ghost, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified in themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. This of a uh, companion to the one in ten, very strong warning, that those who turn from truth and in an ongoing way crucify the Son of God afresh, put him to an open shame, trample under the foot the blood of the covenant that it is impossible to renew them once again to repentance. This is not a simply a falling momentarily into sin. This is a deliberate choice away from truth and away from what they knew and were taught. And in the same way that the assurance of our salvation is not because of the basic principles of the doctrine of Christ, we don't assure ourselves because of the commitment that we made back then. We assure ourselves because of where we are currently today with the Lord. We are continuing on unto perfection. In the same way, those who turn and continue to walk away from the Lord and crucify the Son of God afresh, there is no, no uh, hope for them unless they turn once again to the Lord Jesus. Our salvation, he is able to save them to the uttermost in an ongoing way because of his intercession. He does not have that, that opportunity when they turn away and put the Lord Jesus to an open shame. Severe warning and then confirmation. Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Yes, I've given you that warning, but I'm confident that you will continue on and that you will go on to perfection. God is not unrighteous to forget your work, your labor of love, which you have showed toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Very strong hope and anchor for the soul. He gives in the, the last part of the chapter, verse chapter 6, 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So God, in promising Abraham a son, 
The promise that he made was the one thing that was immutable. When God says it, it will happen. And the second thing was the oath and the fact that God cannot lie. He's carrying that forward to our own experience and that Jesus, which hope we have, is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and that which entereth into the veil. The promise of eternal rest and Jesus having walked the way before us and entered into that within the veil, sitting at the right hand of God, is an anchor that tugs us in the right direction, both sure and steadfast. Chapter 7, the connection with Melchizedek. And I think I will take the time to read this one, a very uh, key passage in understanding the place of the Lord Jesus compared to the Old Testament advantages that they, they had. Chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Melchizedek, both a king and a high priest of the Most High God. Remember that the two highest offices in Judaism were that of king and high priest. Verse 4, now consider how this great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of his spoils. And so this man Abraham, whom you revere, met Melchizedek, and gave him the tenth of his spoils. And verily they that are of the office of the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them, blessed, received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises. And so if we can follow the thinking here, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham was the father of the Levites. The Levites had a position of honor in administrating the, off, the sacrifices and the priesthood, and they received tithes of support from the people. They didn't have the, the inheritance and the land. They received their, their living, their livelihood from the people that entire system of priesthoods paid tithes to Melchizedek because of descent from Abraham. Verse 7, And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Abraham blessed Abraham. So two things proving the superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham. One, the fact that Abraham paid him tithes. And two, the priest of the Most High God then blessed Abraham. Verse 8, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may say, so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which title tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and profitableness thereof. The things that we know about Melchizedek, Genesis chapter 14, two or three verses, talk about the encounter with, with Abraham. Abraham paid him the tithes. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Interestingly, Melchizedek brought bread and wine and gave it to Abraham. The writer in Hebrews doesn't make a point of that. We could make a point that the bread and wine, Jesus and instituting the communion, the new covenant, take eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me, the bread and the wine representing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. But that's all we know about Melchizedek. Nothing is said of his ancestry, who he was, where he came from. The points in Hebrews are made more on what we don't know about Melchizedek than on what we do. My thought is that Melchizedek was a real historical figure. The details of his life are not recorded. He becomes important because of the prophetic passage in Psalm 110 and verse 4. God swore that he would be a priest forever. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we know from the book of Hebrews that that passage was prophetic about the Lord Jesus sworn that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I am blessed when I think of this teaching, rather obscure and maybe doesn't mean that much to us today, but very significant teaching to the Jews at that time. When you think of, do we have any writing instruments? These two men... meeting each other back in the Old Testament. We know nothing about Melchizedek. Nothing is said about him since. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the fathers. And from him developed that Jewish culture and, and religion that I talked about. All of the things that were important. The priesthood the law, the prophets, the entire Jewish system that at the time of Christ was this huge uh, structure monolith and the genius of Melchizedek and the tie to Christ is that he comes in behind and puts Christ before this all developed. And that was a a key point for them to consider. That Jesus, not only was he brought in behind and a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, king and high priest, he also was very much a part of the system in the tribe of Judah. And that is just a... A beautiful concept to me in, in thinking of the the place of Jesus and Judaism, not denying this, but going in behind and Jesus very much being a part of it. That is the teaching of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made surety of a better testament, and they were truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Jesus, the high priest, king, 
And at this time in history, there was still a high priest. In a few years, there would no longer be a high priest. Jesus, in going forward, is your king, your high priest. Chapter 8, the superiority of the new covenant. It's no longer a covenant of land in Israel. It is now written in the hearts of men. It's within you. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers in the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt, but this is the covenant that I will make in the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts. It is a heart covenant, and that is the place where God resides, not Jerusalem. Chapters 9 and 10, the superiority of Christ's ministry in the sanctuary, the superiority of the the heavenly sanctuary, the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice, once for all, the blood of bulls and of goats, impossible to, to uh, take away sin. And then at the end of the section, chapter 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. The invitation to accept the work, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. Which system would you rather put your hope and your confidence in? The old, the changing priesthood, the laws, the sacrifices, or the power of an endless, endless life that today is interceding on our behalf? I thought I would emphasize the the Difference in the two covenants with this little reading. In, in closing, I sit in hushed silence on a soft pew among the worshipers. Everyone looks fresh and smells fresh, having recently showered and shaved and combed. Someone begins singing softly, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. My jumbled and scattered thoughts go to God and his holiness and the call to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. My mind goes on. It goes to Jesus. I see Jesus on the right hand of God receiving my worship and accepting my prayers, pleading my cause before God. I am blessed and thankful once more for the new and living way that Jesus made for me. I'm glad Jesus walked the road for me, experienced temptation as I do, learned obedience in the things that he suffered, and then went to Gethsemane, the road to the cross in Calvary for me. I am blessed by the thought that he's able to save me to the uttermost, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for me. Then my mind wanders to another place, another time. I move among the animals, waiting their turn at the brazen altar. The sounds and smells of slaughter are everywhere. The stench of dried blood mixes with the smell of burnt flesh and the smell of fresh manure splattered on the altar, the result of fear and apprehension in the bullock awaiting his turn. I try in vain to shield my senses by breathing shallowly through my mouth as I attempt to keep the overpowering stench from penetrating my nasal passages. It's hopeless. The air is saturated. My eyes burn. My nose runs. My stomach lurches. I want to run, but I can't pull myself away. I want to see more. A cow balls. Sheep bat. A goat screams in panic as it receives the knife of death. He kicks convulsively at first, and then movements become slower and slower. Eyes stare, dilated and unseen. Finally, the body lays still with an only occasional twitch and involuntary tremor, a reminder of the life that so recently came to an end. The pan of blood collected from the dying goat will be sprinkled on the altar, on the garments, on the people. The blood. Life is in the blood from the strange combination of slaughterhouse and sale barn scenes and smells came the blood. Hope, promise, forgiveness, Reconciliation, atonement, a shadow of better things to come. 
I turn to walk away. I realize I'm drenched in sweat. The sun is hot on my brow. As I go, I disturb the flies feasting on the animal remnants. In a buzz of anxiety, they take flight, clearing a path in front of me and then settling in behind me like the wake of a boat in the water. I wipe my brow and I, as I leave, and I realize that the animals or the smells will go with me until I can find clean clothes in a shower. Now I move forward to another time, another scene of confusion and chaos. The crowds are milling around a man who is clearly the center of their attention. He is being jostled and abused and pushed forward violently, forward, but he offers no resistance. He too is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. He asked his captors, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But this is your hour in the power of darkness. I sense those words go deep, an old conflict, the Garden of Eden. Your hour in the power of darkness. A sovereign God temporarily giving way to Satan and the powers of darkness in order for his work to be finished. One of his disciples draws a sword and cuts off an ear. Jesus reaches out and touches the ear, and immediately there is healing. He asks the errant disciple, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Then did they spit in his face, and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Pilate attempts to ease his conscience by negotiating with the crowd. Shall I release Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas, a thief and a murderer, and they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. And so Barabbas goes free, and Jesus is sentenced to death. I am reminded that I too was guilty of death and set free by this man's blood. I now see him walking away from Pilate's hall. His face is bruised. He wears a crown of thorns on his head and a purple robe across his body. His body is bent by the weight of a cross that lays across his back and drags on the ground. The officers grab a man called Simon of Cyrene. Here, you carry it for him. Him they compelled to carry the cross. And I recall his words, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there is a cross for everyone and there is a cross for me. He doesn't resist the cross, but kneels to the ground and lays down, stretches his hands out for the hammer and the nails. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the Jews unto Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. The darkness is oppressive, but through the darkness we hear his words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Crying it is finished, he gave up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. The earth did quake, the rocks rent. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. The blood, cleansing, healing, grace, forgiveness, redemption, peace, reconciliation. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that blood, flood, lose all their guilty stains. 
The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and here and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. The blood of eternal life, the water of the word. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. The graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection. Behold, there was an earthquake. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. The angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not. You know, I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh, having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. 